Welcome to Conversations with Kim. This podcast is about awakening the human spirit, seeing beyond this moment, and exploring alternative paradigms for how we work, lead, and live. I invite you to sit back, exhale, and enjoy the flow. Arlie Forrest is an endorsed insight yoga teacher, an energy medicine practitioner, and accredited Enneagram teacher. Carly trained at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California and has spent almost 20 years deepening her practice in Vipassana and Tantric Buddhist traditions. Her work honors the mysteries of the natural world while inviting people into dialogue with their lives and an embodied experience of reality. I met Carly in 2016 while she was leading the silent retreat on Denman Island. Since then, Carly has been one of my most formative teachers with her voice often reminding me to stay with my life and my experience, even in moments of discomfort. In this conversation, we explore her journey and how practice has led to porosity in her soul. We also look at our human tendencies to numb and dissociate from experience while opening a window to explore the benevolence of reality and the possibility for change through developing a relationship of reciprocity with the more than human sphere. we get started, I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge the land that I'm speaking to you from. I am on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional territory of the Cree people and the homeland of Métis Nation. And I'll turn it over to you, Carly, to introduce yourself however you see fit, as well as the land that you're joining us from today. Thank you. Well, I am on the traditional territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nation. This area is known as Victoria, BC. Specifically, I'm in the Esquimalt area. Um, Yeah, as far as introducing myself, my name is Carly Forrest. I identify as uh, she, her. I um, am cisgendered and I teach various practices and um, traditions that I hope help people remember who they are beyond uh, our conditioning and helpfully help to hopefully help to resource folks to feel more um, at ease in their life and in their humanity. I just want to dig in right there, Carly, on remember who we are beyond our conditioning. Mm -hmm. Can you say more on that? Yeah, well, um, I guess so much of what I'm offering in terms of my work is all based on my own experience of my own journey, my own inquiry into what it means to be human, which means I've been grappling for a really long time with my own um, suffering and, you know, the pain that I have carried with me. And it started, you know, around, I guess, uh, 22 years ago, 23 years ago, when I started sort of waking up to the amount of, um, 
you know, yeah, pain, I would say that was in me. And it was, it was through uh, exploration actually with plant medicine with mushrooms and being in nature on my own and um, kind of being able to see through exploring with those plants, the, um, the ways in which I felt really constricted and really held back and not at ease and not natural and not feeling really connected to my humanity, uh, to my humanness. I was, uh, could see through those explorations, a kind of layer that I was walking around with around who I thought I needed to be and how I needed to act. And it felt uncomfortable and I didn't have any tools or understanding to even begin to unpack what I was feeling or give voice to what I was feeling or even know what I was feeling exactly. I just, I just knew there was some, there was some pain there that I couldn't process. So my experience over the last, you know, 22 years has been to um, more and more be accepting of my own humanity and my own, uh, have more compassion for the ways that I, suffer and to feel more at home in my skin and in my life and on this planet. So as a natural, I think byproduct of that, I started eventually sharing what I was learning because I was feeling such an immense shift in my orientation and the way I moved through life and um, eventually started sharing what I was learning along the way. And that's taken many iterations over the last 22 years definitely but I feel like the core of all of it has been just that how can how can I essentially it comes down to my own experience and then Mm -hmm. transmitting that the best I can how can I be more um more of who I really am beyond conditioning so you know that conditioning being the layers of um identification I have with Uh, who I think I should be and how that's been absorbed in me through whether it's family of origin or culture or um, just my own ideas of what that is, you know, to get, to get more and more free of those constraints or to let them be a little bit more porous anyway, not that I'm free, that's for sure, but things are a bit more porous anyway. I can say that truthfully. Yeah. Um, there's so much in there, Carly. I love how you're talking about going into it and that like meeting the pain versus pushing it away mm-hmm. is really this doorway to finding out who you truly are. Mm-hmm. And yet it's so countercultural. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about some of the practices that have helped you've been able to find refuge and maybe a little bit of a roadmap in towards moving towards this. Yeah, well, I think it's a little different for everyone, but for me personally, what I, I what I was grappling with and still grapple with, you know, because it's such a well-worn pattern in me has been a tendency toward numbness or dissociation or dullness, we could say, that under stress, what I noticed, especially in those um, younger years, is that I would only be partially present. There was really a a kind of inward withdrawal that was quite consistent. And within that, which was a defense mechanism, it is a defense mechanism, it's a way to stay safe, and it really helped me 
at certain periods in my life, especially my younger years, I'm sure, um, when it was fully formed or put into practice in a very consistent way. Um, the painful part of that is, yeah, it can keep one safe. It kept me safe from um, certain levels of discomfort, just, just going numb. But it also meant that I was um, pulled back from experiencing joy and experiencing a sense of real aliveness and freedom in the way I express myself and, uh, and connection too, really. So for me, what was really helpful in the beginning anyway, was first the recognition of this, which I think my experience with plant medicine helped me to see it with more clarity. And I think that's, um, that was a very, kind of painful and humbling and a place where I wasn't really sure what to do with because there's on the one level it's having insight into what's going on is helpful but then it's the how now what do I do now that yeah what now um but I really just tried to follow what was what I was interested in or what was really pulling me and at the time you know this was 1999 or something I uh, was lucky that I was in Vancouver at the time actually and I met um, an acupuncturist and she was also a yoga teacher so she was supporting me and she encouraged me to go to my first yoga class which um, for me which at the time you know I had very little connection to my body I couldn't feel much from my neck down I think and was doing a lot to continue to numb myself through you know drinking and lots of weed smoking and um yeah and and it was really intimidating to go to a yoga class and um felt very foreign and wild and it wasn't really even that well known at the time and yeah that first class I remember finding it so hard to even breathe to follow the instructions to do a proper full breath it made me want to cry you know every time I would try to do that there was uh, an intense amount of feeling that was there that was just slowly being touched and um but by the end of that class going into the final posture which many people know is shavasana or corpse posture I just felt something in me that felt uh kind of awake or connected for the first time in a really long time and as bizarre as the whole thing felt on many levels, um, I just, I had a voice in me that was kind of saying, you're, you're going to keep doing this. You're going to do this. So that was a, a big part of me coming back into myself, I would say, or coming back into embodiment and, and helping me with the numbness, which was just my particular, it's, it's been one of my particular things I've been grappling with is that kind of dissociation or numbness. And yoga practice, the embodiment practice has been, you know, was for many years, like absolute medicine for me. So I just continued to follow that because it was just bringing me back to life in a way that, yeah, I hadn't experienced for a really long time. So embodiment practice, I think has been a huge part of my process and um, through that that being kind of a doorway into meditative practice I started sitting pretty much right after those first um, that first year of practicing yoga I started 
sitting on longer retreats, going on Buddhist meditation retreats, mostly because that's just what was offered were Buddhist meditation retreats. You could go and sit for 10 days and it was by donation and very accessible in many ways. Um, and then that started a very, you know, many year journey, long journey of going on many long retreats and learning about my mind and training my mind through that particular map. Um, and the meditative yogic practice as well, yin yoga. And then that evolved too, as all things do, you know, into the next layer, which for me was um, really looking at kind of the marriage of uh, both meditative practices and psychological practices or insights or maps. And I've been working specifically with a map called the Enneagram for the last 10, 11 years as a way to um, understand more about my particular fixations and compensatory <laughs> strategies and, and how to be, uh, you know, more precise in working with them because there can be such a tendency when one is engaged in more meditative practices and um, yogic practices to fall into spiritual bypassing, which I did over and over again. So it's been a good antidote for me to also have a good psychological map to be working with. I wondered if you could name what spiritual bypassing is for people that might not quite be familiar with that term. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a term that was coined by John Wellwood, actually, who's East-West psychologist um, who uh, passed away a few years ago. Actually, he's the, he was the husband of one of my main teachers for many years was Jennifer Wellwood. His, uh, her, her husband coined that term from what I understand, it was a term he coined kind of in response to what he was seeing in the culture at the time when he was practicing meditation and also a psychologist and seeing a, a real tendency in the communities. And I'm sure with his clients, I can't, I, I don't know that actually for sure. I shouldn't say that, but I'm assuming it's just what he was seeing around him. Um, a real tendency to move toward the absolute and uh, spiritual teachings and kind of what are known as or thought of as kind of universal truths as a way to avoid humanity and the personal. So going to the absolute instead of the relative and, um, you know, phrases like it's all good. What we're seeing now, I think they're calling it toxic positivity. Um, there's a lot of it in more new age culture, you know, that just feeling as though we could be manifesting anything we want or we dream. And if we aren't, then there's something wrong with us. We're not, uh, in a way it's, it's taking the teachings. It's kind of um, teachings that are here to help us, I think ultimately become more human and actually try and move toward more of a superhuman enlightened uh, all encompassing states So really, bypassing our humanity in order to get to some idealized version of who we are that you know for me just to come back to what's more personal my experience of it when in my early 20s living in spiritual communities and you know was wearing all white and just focusing on the positive and wanting always to be of service and generous and good and kind and bypassing my own feelings of anger or rage or 
sadness and always wanting to put on a happy, peaceful, calm face. And um, it really can form a spiritual construct identity on top of um, an already existing construct or identity. So you get yourself in a real pickle with it, or I have over and over again, you know, it's like a constant <laughs> process of deconstructing my own spiritual bypassing. Cause I'm in this field. I'm very aware of it, thankfully. And I did study with Jennifer for many, with, you know, with her for many years, which helped. And my other teacher, Sarah Powers, I mean, she's a uh, psychologically informed too. So I've had some wonderful mentors to help me navigate it and point out when I'm in the midst of it, if I can't quite access that myself, but it's, it's, it's important to be aware of and staying on top of as much as possible if one is uh, committed to these practices. I think there's so much in your work that aligns with that. I mean, one of the first things when we started working together was this, yes, this too, Mm -hmm. this too, this belongs. And when you're talking about spiritual bypassing, I'm hearing it's the opposite of Mm -hmm welcoming in that totality of the human experience yeah and I think your teachings become so rich because it's not about denying truth it's about welcoming in everything Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you can tell me about that when you made that shift to this too yes Mm -hmm. this too this belongs Mm -hmm. well you know, I think those phrases, I, I was probably first introduced to them, I think through the Buddhist practice, you know, when I was training at Spirit Rock, I remember Jack Cornfield's soft voice talking about inclusion. I think it's really quite woven into many of the teachings I encountered, particularly when I started shifting into the integration of both yoga and, and the Dharma Um there was a sort of gentleness and inclusion and acceptance around wanting to make essentially making friends with ourselves and our lives and, and, you know, the meta practices, the loving kindness practices, you would always start with befriending yourself, you know, having a compassionate kind relationship with where you are right now. And it's aspirational in nature. It may not be exactly how you're feeling, but it, the idea is that you're planting these seeds of inclusion if they're not quite true. So I think that was my first encounter of it was really probably through the meta practices, the uh, Vahara, the, the inclusion, you know, the ways that we cultivate our heart and our mind um, in kind ways. So it's not just kind of a cold distant observation of what's happening in the content of the mind, but there's actually an atmosphere of warmth and, um, tending to ourselves like a like a loving attuned parent if we didn't have that particular holding environment so I think it was through the dharma that I initially learned that and I think it's just evolved over the years and, and I've put more of an emphasis on it because I've seen in myself the years I was striving so much to become a great you know uh a good meditator, or good teacher, or good person, or spiritual, and you know all the striving involved in that, and the way I was cutting myself off from my humanity and creating that divide of a spiritual person and a non-spiritual person mm-hmm. within myself, and one being more elevated, or one being good, and one being compassionate, and the other one being 
whatever, any other kind of judgment I could have toward not being that way. So being hard on myself, if I wasn't practicing for long periods of time and just the ways that it subtly starts to create a divide and therefore almost a hierarchy internally of when you're good or better than, or, you know, than you were last week or yesterday. And it it can just become such a mess. And I just started at some point when I, I think when things really started kind of dissolving for me in terms of where I thought my life was going, there was another layer of bringing in a true emphasis of um, needing to really relax my ideas even more about what a practitioner is and what a teacher is and what, um, you know, what a spiritual person is. I just kind of got tired of the whole thing, you know, it all kind of had to collapse and there had to be just an emphasis on how can I be just as good as I can to myself as I am in this moment without, without putting that projection of, you know, I teach yoga, therefore I have to be like this all the time, or I teach meditation, therefore I have to be, you know, like this all the time. It's just so oppressive. You know, it felt, that's how it felt for me. Like I was just, uh, you know, creating a, a, an atmosphere of inner criticism that wasn't conducive and was in contrast to what I was actually wanting to be sharing with people. So I, I've had to over and over again through the years, just deconstruct, you know, come to a new level of understanding in myself and seeing where I'm stuck or where I'm caught. And there's, it's kind of like an endless process of, um, creation and destruction internally right of all these different seasons and and in it just a refining of my understanding of what it means to be truly good to myself and truly loving and truly showing up beyond showing up for myself in a loving way even if I have um you know hurt another person or um done something that I thought was out of integrity um or wasn't out of integrity, you know, was out of alignment. How can I keep still showing up for myself in those places too? You know, when I've disappointed myself, when I've disappointed other people, how do I keep forgiving myself? How, when life hasn't gone the way I thought it was going to go, um, that at the end of the day, it's my relationship with myself and the way that I'm showing up for myself that's going to be contributing to all of my relationships. So it's yeah, that's an ever evolving process that I'm in with deepening my sense of um, self-love. And then of course, then that will translate into what I'm teaching. So it's had, it's had many evolutions and iterations, I would say. Yeah. I, I feel like what you're touching on is tied to what you're saying before and that, like, our ability to befriend ourselves even when we're not our best version of ourselves and have our own back it seems to be like directly in proportion to how much we need to numb and how much we need to dissociate yeah and for me it's been a the foundation has been that self-love piece of and it sounds hokey but it's that coming back to you have to have your own back yeah in a kind way not justify your behavior but open space for this too is human in your words. Um, One of the things that you were just touching on and I love how you pull from the natural world 
as part of your teachings. And you're talking about the seasons. And one of the things you've said to me years ago was uh, welcoming myself to be an apprentice to the seasons, to Mm -hmm. realize that it's a death birth cycle. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about this apprenticeship to the seasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, I feel like I probably got that language from Jennifer Wellwood, who I studied with for many years, and I remember she would she would talk about apprenticing ourselves to life. I believe I feel I feel like I need to give her um, some credit for that because I'm pretty sure that's where I heard it from first. And it's just always appealed to me this idea that you know we're. I mean, my, part of the foundation of my orientation, the way I perceive reality, is is that it's benevolent, you know, for, for better, for worse, I have a fairly, even in really, 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 I mean, there's been a lot of times I've actually lost some hope and some faith, but um, I really mark that as a place too, a very important place. But I would say the thread that runs through things for me is I do feel this sense of benevolence or um, I do feel a sense of trust, you know, it's worked out so far. Right. And um part of how I keep, I keep a a certain perspective is this idea that there's a regenerative force in all of life and it's mirrored to us through the natural world all the time. And apprenticeship is so ancient. I think, you know, we've always been learning from each other and why wouldn't we be learning from different aspects of the natural world and from seasons too. And I think, there's just so much to learn from observing the um, the process of transformation that's always happening around us and within us so that we don't, so that I don't feel, you know, I want to speak for myself again. I, having gone through many winters, you know, of the soul where it feels like nothing will grow again and it's dark most of the time, um, what keeps that thread of trust is that sense. I know spring comes. I know even when it's long, I grew up in Alberta, you know, I know winters are long and they can be, and it can feel like uh, the flowers won't bloom again, but they always do. So there's something about just trusting nature, trusting the transformative process and really yielding to it has been really helpful for me that it, you know, a season like a winter, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a matter of months. You know, we can be in winter for years. I've been in winters for years where it just, it's not shifting. Spring isn't coming, but yeah, I think there's something, something when one, when I have yielded myself to that, to the possibility that it could be, it could be dark for a while. You know, there might not be a lot of light there. There might not be a lot of growth. What can I glean from this time of um, stillness and quiet and, and solitude often for me, it's meant. And that there's, there's something that there's gifts in all the seasons, you know, that there's something to be learned. There's some medicine, there's some, um, intelligence that's important and because I think there is such an emphasis that I've had to deconstruct in myself 
again, over and over again, is the emphasis on kind of an endless summer. That life should be an endless summer, that we should be in perpetual growth, perpetual happiness, perpetual abundance. And it's just, that's not the way of things, you know, it's not the way of nature. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, it doesn't take much looking out to the natural world to understand that this perpetual growth is <laughs> a misconstruction of our time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How, how do you find hope in this moment mm-hmm. when you potentially pull on some of these metaphors of, um, that it's not always summer? that this too will pass. How how do you find hope? How do I find hope? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I I find hope when I look around me and I see in my community, a lot of people doing amazing reskilling. You know, I have some very good friends who are, always inspiring me with what they're up to and what they're making and how they're learning to be in more of a reciprocal relationship with the land and teaching that to other people and how important that is. And, and when I look around my community and see people who are making real efforts to understand how we can be more resource going forward in terms of having strong and resilient nervous systems and know how to be with our pain because I think that's going to be even more important as things continue to shift and change for us uh, globally um, with climate crisis we'll need we'll need to have strong inner resources I think that's really important so I'm really inspired by people who are teaching and and wanting to share skills for folks to reskill and be on the land in a good way and understand where their food systems come from and um emphasize the importance of connection with the more than human world and i'm yeah very heartened by people who are also teaching people how to be in connection with their grief and their pain and know how to process it and be more human because I think that's incredibly important going forward too that we're actually connected with our hearts so that we can feel into this time because I think the feeling into it is the key in order to become engaged in whatever way feels correct to um, be a part of hopefully making this process more compassionate for everyone. You're bringing up something that you said last time that like shook me when we were on the phone Mm -hmm. and you said, we're talking again about climate change and how I see, at least in my circles, a lot of people thinking like, Oh, COVID's going to go, it'll go back to normal. But there's also this, um, I mean, it's lifted the rug and now we have to see what the cost of it, of the societal model is. And you said to me, um, you know, sitting with the grief of what's truly at stake here. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, <laughs> what's truly at stake here? I mean, that stuck out for me so much. Yeah. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit more kindly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a part of what I see anyway, and again, I'm talking about myself too. Anything I'm seeing, it's something I'm seeing in myself too. 
Um, I'm not above it. That's for sure. It's just the, the way in which screens have really come in phones, distraction, even Instagram, social media. I mean, I'm on, I'm on Instagram too. And I'm always grappling with friends, you know, about should I pull off of it? Should we pull off of it? Is this really how we want to be spending our time? You know, it can be such a pull into an interesting where I've learned a lot, you know, it's true. I've had a lot of education through people sharing on Instagram. Um, but there's a way that these screens and the way that we're pulled into this other dimension um, can take away from connection to our hearts and our bodies and our minds. And I'm speaking personally, you know, and as I've mentioned, dissociation and numbness has been my my go-to for a really long time so I have to stay on top of that and I think seeing what I see in myself and what I see you know and hear from friends and people I know is that the more we're in that realm the less connected we can be to actually how we're feeling and then you add to that how available we all are you know emails are expected to be responded to right away. There's still a kind of um, quickness, you know, it's, it's the pull of, we should all be working 40 to 80 hours a week. And it just keeps this movement. And then on top of that, a lot of people are in kind of householder times or seasons of their life, family life. And um, the, the pace of things can really take us outside of being able to feel into what's actually happening and we might be more in the head center having kind of a rational or cognitive awareness of what's going on but in order for me to be able to for myself to be able to um connect with what's at stake here it has to be connected to through the heart you know through the feeling of the immensity of loss we're all facing and have been facing in terms of extinction of species and um, the amount of people who are suffering and will continue to suffer and um, what this means for the kids that we know now and the, the ones who are just being born, what they're going to be inheriting. I mean, we can think about this, but I think the way forward for me anyway, has been being in my heart and actually feeling it, you know, actually feeling the immensity of what we're facing, that it's not business as usual. And I think COVID gave us a really good um, kind of glimpse of how quickly things can go off the rails, you know, our assumed perception of how we think things should be going as a culture and how things should be running and how it doesn't take much and we can be derailed from that view and um, how startling that can be if, if we're not engaging in practices that keep us connected to our hearts and to our inner resources. So, yeah, I mean, it's a long answer, but um I think there's a real call to more in, in my life um, ways that I can be less engaged in the technology world. And, you know, some of it's a necessity for, for work for many of us. And then, you know, reevaluating the parts that are actually not of necessity and it's just distraction and it's actually keeping me at a distance from my heart, which is really needed at this time to be making choices, you know, and, engaging in what feels actually meaningful. 
Yeah. What shifts for you, Carly? And I love that you're speaking from you um, because there's this universality to your teachings, um, but that you put yourself as a teacher kind of right there with everyone else. I really respect that. And I'm wondering what shifts for you when you go from the headspace of the overwhelm of media, the constant on, to actually going inside your body and that deep listening, that deep connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think for me, my experience is that things become a lot simpler and slower and there's more space for what's actually happening in my life. So I'm having more time to actually make food, which makes me feel better. Um, I'm, I'm connecting with the people, you know, relationships are so important to me, especially being, you know, I don't have children. My family doesn't live here. My, my girlfriends have been just, you know, the foundation of my life. So many of my close, close girlfriends, they're like family to me. So maintaining those relationships all of that requires real, you know, aside from my work life, aside from the people I'm, I'm supporting and tending to in that way, I also have other relationships I really want to keep supporting and tending to in the relationship first and foremost with my own, you know, with my soul and, and making sure that I'm feeling connected to myself. So yeah, stepping away I definitely notice the difference if I'm having a lot of computer time and a lot of um social media time a lot of Netflix time there's there's a very familiar dullness numbness I'm just not as available to life I'm not as available to the people in my life I'm not as available to myself you know but you know I also want to say that I there's um I think a necessary titration too I I um, I enjoy watching Netflix occasionally, you know, like I really like watching good shows and the storytelling aspect of it. I like seeing what my friends are up to on social media. It's, I don't want to be in this all or nothing mentality either. I think there's a real place for it. It's just when the pendulum starts switching over and I'm avoiding something, I notice I'm pulled more into that world and I'm, I think sometimes the overwhelm of what's been experienced this last year and continuing to think about climate crisis and where we're at, I mean, that can slip into overwhelm pretty easy. So there's a way that numbness can really in, um, interfere for me with my, with my desire toward right action in my life. Mm-hmm. I want to make that distinction because there is a place I think for, Right. It's not this or that. It's oh, like no, no. being careful as we swing the pendulum in either direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hearing from you. It's that ability to listen deeply to what you really need, to what's most nourishing that you lose when you get into that numb space. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because you speak of communion with mystery, with uh, the natural world with this deeper listening, not just to yourself, but to life as if life was speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does it look like to be in that type of relationship with the world? Well, I think it's like any other kind of relationship. It requires attending to, you know, it requires attention. Like the relationships with my close girlfriends require 
attention, you know, the relationship with my partner requires attention. Um, so for me, it's, it's being outside as much as I can actually, you know, going out and being um, in trees in particular. I really, yeah, I feel something in me absolutely settles and opens when I'm in, when I'm in the trees or going in the water. I was doing that a lot last year, going in um, the ocean regularly, which felt so cleansing and important. Um, Yeah. There's just a need to make it a priority, you know, in order to be in that kind of relationship where there's something coming in. That's not just from screens or from humans. I find that so important for my, mental health my physical health is that i'm spending time with uh creatures and beings that aren't just humans it's it's it especially the it it makes me look you know it makes me be curious and and pay attention to the color of the flower the way the petal moves you know the it just like attending to those details and leaving my own kind of egocentric or, you know, my self-consumption. Um, yeah, there's, there's just nothing, there's nothing more settling to me, I think, than being in that type of relationship or conversation. Yeah. Hey, what's coming to me as you're saying this was uh, I was on a Bill Plotkin retreat years ago and he said, forget about yourself and fall in love with the world yeah yeah exactly and I hear that speaking through your words of forgetting about your day-to-day your struggles your worries and letting the world move you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do you think if we're in this relationship where we actually are in dialogue with the natural world and maybe not speaking directly Mm -hmm. but we're apprenticing to the seasons Mm -hmm. watching we're listening we're learning how do you think if we lived in a society that promoted or supported alternative practices like that, how do you think we'd be different? Hmm, good question. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I'm assuming and I feel I don't want to speak to it, but I think these cultures have existed before and um can be easy to idealize the past and I wasn't there for it. So I don't know, but I know from my own experience now that I, for me personally, it's the call to be in more direct contact with the natural world. And in that kind of conversation feels even more pressing and relevant given the amount of stimulation that's coming in through technology And how, you know, I just look at the last 10 years of my life and I didn't have a smartphone before, I think, 2011. And I I can say, honestly, that it has impacted my life in a detrimental way Mm -hmm. to have this level of connection to a phone. Um, There's been ways it's been a lot of fun to stay in touch with with people who especially don't live near me. But... um, just knowing that this is, it seems to only be increasing. It feels like what we need 
from my perspective, is more of a, a return to um, simplicity in, in terms of spending more time in, in the natural world and learning how to be in it in a way that's not about dominating or resource extraction, but actually about um, honoring and reciprocity and curiosity and really honoring the fact that we are here and living because of the generosity of this planet, you know, and um, how that should, I would assume, or, you know, for me, makes me feel like there's a lot to give back there. There's a lot to steward and try and take care of. So, yeah, that's why I'm saying. I, I feel such respect for a lot of people I know who are doing a lot of work to try and really help this generation. And, you know, I grew up on screens too. So it's, I think for, for many people, the connection with the natural world does feel a bit foreign. It doesn't feel natural um, and it has to be taught again. And so finding people who are, who have that connection are willing to share it with others feels incredibly important right now. Yeah. I'm almost hearing this like, when we change what we value, how we treat the natural world, the world will change. I mean, I hope so. That would be, uh, that would be, that would be the, the ultimate hope, right? That when our values change and how we're perceiving the planet changes, not something again, to be dominant over or to just take from for our own needs, but to, to see it as a reciprocal relationship, that would be a, a huge paradigm shift, I think. And, and a necessary one right now, my gosh, like it's the core of it all. I like how you're talking about that there is this need for handholders to show us from, you know, extract us from our screens and show us what it looks like to have a meaningful connection with the natural world. I can remember on the first retreat of yours that I went on and he said, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to sit and we're going to talk and listen to trees. And there were a lot of us in the room. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to do what? <laughs> And it's not until you're put into this alternative space that it really is okay. Yeah. Um, there really is something there. And then science is actually getting to the point. And I love how your work does this, where you'll pull on science to show, you know, actually we're learning about the intelligence of plants in the natural world and their ability to communicate in different ways. And it's only like then you can let down the guard and actually put yourself in these experiential practices. Cause I think so much of this can be abstract until you start experiencing it. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to live into what you're saying, that right action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, retreats back when we could gather for retreats were really sweet that way because it was such an opportunity. I, I always felt to, we were doing silent retreats. So and, and mind training, so doing meditative practice and embodiment practices, and then adding that element of, yeah, now go onto the land and actually let yourself be drawn to a spot or a place and see what happens when you just sit there with curiosity and open to a certain conversation emerging. And those often, the feedback I received often were those were the most powerful experiences on the retreat and it's almost like we need those days of detoxing from our screens and from the compulsion to be um focused in an exterior way on just all the content 
and the content in the mind and we can settle enough so we can open. But as you saw on that retreat, it usually takes a little bit and you've done work with Bill Potkin too. It usually takes a little bit of time to just reorient and attune in a different way. Um, yeah, we need, we need practices to help us do that. It's, it's something that needs to be taught because often this isn't something we were taught often in our family of origin. I mean, people who were very fortunate. Yeah, I'm thinking my father-in-law shared a story recently how he was bored. So they've got these beautiful fields behind their house that are treated. And he's like, so I walk out there <laughs> and I go out there. I'm standing out there like an idiot thinking, what am I doing? And I'm smiling and that, I, you know, that egoic mind. Of, yeah, what are you doing? Do something productive. Do something that yeah. means something um, versus be observed. Yes. yes. That's the whole thing. Yeah, there's such a deep, ingrained inner voice that for me, and I think for many of us says, you know, we need to be doing something that just being is, it, 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 and often there isn't, um, there's so much emotion or unresolved inner material that I know this for myself, I couldn't just be, I, if I was just still, I would be anxious. So I would need a lot to drink or a lot to smoke or, you know, just being felt, um, especially being silent for a few days that felt completely terrifying, you know? So yeah, the, the emphasis on being and on resting more, you know, all of this being in nature more. I mean, and, and again, there's a lot of people who don't have that option or possibility due to life circumstances and, you know, financial insecurity and uh, responsibility. So yeah, for myself, the way my life is right now, I do see it as a great privilege that I have the opportunity to be doing more of that um, and to make it a priority. So for the people that are listening at home or friends that are listening and they're thinking exactly to that end on there's something that you're speaking that rings true I want to start incorporating some more of this into my life, but I don't know where to start. Where do you recommend people start on the journey? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so different for everyone. I would say um, I try to follow this in terms of wherever my next steps are is just to go where I feel most excited, you know, where the energy is, where I feel most alive in the hearing of it or the, um, teaching of it or the thought of it it yeah go where the energy is go where the excitement is go where the pull is um and you know I have found it really helpful to marry several different practices you know I don't follow fall neatly into any one stream there's been you know like I said embodiment practice opened a doorway into meditative practice, which opened a doorway into more psychological inquiry and practice. And through that, the thread that's woven through all of it has been uh, nature-based practices. So yeah, I mean, go, go where you feel most alive. And also, I'm, I know Bill Plotkin talks about this, you know, you're in the territory of soul when the feeling is both like, you know, when it's dangerous and alluring, when there's mm -hmm. like, when you feel really compelled almost like you can't not walk, not walk down that road. So yeah, it's so different for everyone, but. I like that. 
follow the excitement, follow the passion. And it is, um, I mean, so much of Bill Plotkin's work almost, I remember reading it the first time, it feels dangerous. Yeah, to read. Yeah. Because there is this like ask of what are you most in service of and what do you want with this one life you have to live? Mm-hmm. And where I liked your work is that balance between the one life that we have to live and the living from soul, the connection to nature, and the being here for our responsibilities and the things that matter most and the people that we love. I see it just mm-hmm. bring it together so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much for being such a profound teacher in my life, Carly. Oh, thanks, Kimberly. I feel honored. Yeah, and thank you for having me on this podcast. You are welcome. I'm curious if people have been inspired by your work, where can they find you? Uh, probably the best place is my website, which is carlyforest.com. One R in forest. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with updating it. I'm pretty good with updating it. I have most of what I'm up to posted on it in terms of um, the combination of teaching the Enneagram and teaching a little bit of embodiment practice these days, not as much, um, focusing a bit more on the Enneagram. And then I always do one-on-one work as well. I do mentorship and I uh, do intuitive energy medicine too. So during the week I'm doing sessions with clients and, uh, and teaching and we'll see what happens in the upcoming year if we're going to be meeting together, but yeah, occasionally I'm teaching online retreats and, um, we'll see if that happens in person again. But yeah, I think my website's the best spot. I'm also on Instagram, although always on the verge of getting off Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta um, gather that. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm always half in, half out. But yeah, it's underscore Carly Forest uh, um, on Instagram, and I do I do post on there as well occasionally. <laughs> well, Carly. Thank you so much for letting me draw you out and sharing again so much of your journey as well as your lens. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored. Yeah.